baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. The country is facing a COVID resurgence, and now we're dealing with a new viral threat. Monkeypox cases are rising across the U.S., and experts say it's hitting the LGBTQ community particularly hard. It's just been about two and a half months uh, since the current outbreak began, and it's already extended to over 60 countries around the world. The problem is of particular concern in New York City, which has more than 700 cases. That's almost a third of all infections in the country. We're fighting two pandemics at once, and we're funding our monkeypox response based on our dollars here in the city. There isn't federal money coming in. As was the situation with COVID tests, treatments, and vaccines, these supplies are hard to come by. New York City at this point uh, is recording over 30% of the monkeypox cases nationally, yet we are receiving about 10% of the monkeypox vaccination supply nationally. And that mismatch is part of why we have such a desperate shortage in New York City where last week, uh, Friday night, there was a release of 9,200 appointments. They were gone in minutes. By some estimates, gone in eight minutes. That is a reflection of the massive need and demand here that we're not able to meet. This has caused considerable frustration. The federal government's response to the monkeypox outbreak has been a failure. At least for now, almost all of the cases are among gay and bisexual men. A lot of the exposures have really been related to close skin-on-skin contact that's associated with sexual activity. If the slow build of infection and the failure to adequately address it sounds a little like the AIDS crisis, experts say that is not the situation. Monkeypox has been around for years, and it's typically not deadly. The resonance with HIV is that we've, we've really seen the lesson and learned the lesson that we need to give a range of strategies to prevent HIV, to prevent infection. This week on 880 In-Depth, monkeypox, how it's transmitted, what public health officials should do about it, and can the system handle two significant viral outbreaks? Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Michael Wallace. There are two overlapping illnesses which have the medical community scrambling. Both are serious in their own right, and both have dominated the headlines. The telltale sign of monkeypox is a rash with lesions. New York State Health Commissioner Dr. Mary Bassett. At this time, there is no other way to diagnose monkeypox save swabbing a pustule. But people may feel symptoms and feel unwell before the rash appears, and we want people to be alert to flu-like symptoms, swollen lymph nodes, and of course, if you get a rash, you should seek uh, attention if you're concerned about monkeypox. In this outbreak, rashes have not always been generalized as they are classically. They've occurred on or in the mouth, in the genital area, in the perianal area, uh, so they have been more localized than we've seen. Uh, that once you have symptoms, these can last for two to four weeks. As, as long as you have heal, a healing rash, you are contagious. Uh, you have to wait until all of the pustules have scabbed, the scab peeled off uh, with healthy skin beneath, 
before we can be confident this can take two to four weeks. A little later, we'll hear from Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine on how the city can better respond. We've got to act aggressively now uh, on all fronts, on testing, on treatment, and certainly on vaccination. But we'll start with Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis. He's the CDC's director of the Division of HIV Prevention. He's also a senior advisor for the agency's monkeypox response. If you think his name sounds familiar, Dr. Daskalakis was a deputy commissioner at the New York City Health Department in the heat of the COVID battle. He spoke to WCBS reporter Peter Haskell. Who should be concerned about getting monkeypox? It's a great question. And we should start by saying that monkeypox can be transmitted um, to anyone. But currently, um, we're seeing the most monkeypox activity among gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. So um, that population, specifically that community, that social network needs to be alert but that everyone, including clinicians, need to be aware that uh, monkeypox doesn't heed sexual orientation or gender identity borders, and we should be on the lookout in uh, other people as well. So how is it transmitted? If I'm not, if I'm not gay, I brush up against a, a friend or a relative, I give them a hug or a kiss. A- am I at risk? Um, so monkeypox is transmitted by close skin-on-skin contact. And that sometimes can happen um, in sort of the setting of, of sexual uh, sexual activity. Um, it can also be transmitted um, from objects that have touched somebody who has monkeypox lesions. So whether that's like clothing or bedding or other personal items or effects that they may be in contact with. And then also through close face-to-face contact um, from the respiratory perspective. And what I mean by close face-to-face contact is, is kissing. Now, I think that there is a range of of risk based on the exposure. So I think brushing up against someone, giving someone a hug fully clothed, giving a a kiss on the cheek or not a deep kiss on the mouth, I think that those are are relatively lower risk than if you were to sort of be hugging someone um, who potentially doesn't have a shirt on for some extended period of time or if you are um, engaged in sexual behavior with them or if you are, are sort of having a deeper kiss. You talked about breathing. So if someone is face-to-face, if they're having a a close dinner, if they're at a club, is that likely to spread the virus? So I think think that in terms of what we're seeing from the epidemiology of the cases in this outbreak, a lot of the exposures have really been related to close skin-on-skin contact that's associated with sexual activity. So though I I cannot say that it's zero risk, um, a quick brush up against someone at the club, um, especially if you're wearing a shirt, is going to be like nearly zero risk. A quick brush up against someone without a shirt may potentially be um, higher risk, but much lower than prolonged physical contact that you see with um, with sexual activity and, and sort of other other skin on skin encounters. So um, I think you also asked about um, you know outside of the club at a dinner or something. I think you know it's it's, it's fairly low risk, especially if you're not sharing utensils. Um, and again, I, I think that it's, there's a range of risk, and I think the highest risk to think about are things that really allow for persistent contact uh, that's skin on skin. You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about COVID. At the beginning, people were wiping down their, their shopping bags, and there was concern. It was that contact. Then we, we found out it was really airborne. Is that possible, or is that likely to have happen here? Yeah. So um, monkeypox is not a new infection to us. So I'll start by saying that. So it's, we've, we've known about this one for decades. 
And so we can say with a lot of certainty, unlike COVID, which was a brand new infection, um, that, that this one is, uh, has the possibility of airborne transmission, not aerosol transmission, but the airborne transmission are specifically is associated with close face-to-face contact. So if you're walking in the grocery store, you're not going to get it from someone who has it. Um, if, however, you're having long, deep kissing with someone who has it, you could potentially have transmission of monkeypox. You've talked about the people who are most at risk. What what message do you tell those folks? What should they do? Do they change behavior? How do they avoid this virus? That's, you know, it's a great question. And I think these are the lessons that we've learned from so many other infections that specifically um, um, really um, really have, have been overrepresented in, the, in, in a lot of communities, including the gay, les, the gay bisexual and other men who have sex, have sex with men community. Um, so really, there needs to be a broad range of options uh, to really meet people where they are, to be able to sort of give them the knowledge that they need to uh, make decisions that are best for their health, and then ultimately also public health. So I think really clear messaging, like we just talked about, about how you get monkeypox, so close skin-on-skin contact contacting objects and personal effects of people who have monkeypox, potentially through prolonged face-to-face contact, such as kissing, through respiratory secretion. So uh, first is, is sort of making sure that we message that clearly. Um, and then also just, you know, there's there's a range of possibilities. So for some people um, who are willing to, be, to, to not have sex, the option for them is potentially to be ab- abstinent. There's some people, on the other hand, who still want to have sexual activity. And in that scenario, we just have to make sure people know how they can reduce harm. And so that includes avoiding having multiple um, or anonymous partners, if possible, avoiding venues where we know that they're epidemiologically higher risk of transmission of monkeypox. So that includes things like sex clubs and private sex parties. So those are really good things at this point to try to avoid if possible. And then finally, for people who... um, potentially won't heed that advice, it's also important to make sure that they know if they have a fever, um, muscle aches, fatigue, that that could be the beginning of symptoms of monkeypox. And if they see a rash, that's definitely reason for concern and need for medical attention. So it goes from don't do anything from the perspective of things that can give you skin and skin contact all the way to the range of if you are going to engage in behaviors that could lead to skin to skin contact here are some ways that you can reduce harm. And I think we already talked about some great examples as well, which is like, if you're going to go to a big event, maybe you want to keep your shirt on. Um, If you do take your shirt off, consider potentially not rubbing up against people as much if possible. So I think it's really a broad range of harm reduction strategies so that people really are armed with the information that they need um, to, uh, to go about living their lives in a way that is cautious, but not just anxious. There is the concern that some could call this a gay disease, and that raises the issue of stigmatizing the illness and those who are sick. I mean, this is the line we tow every day in the work that I do in the Division of HIV Prevention. I've been towing that line now for decades. And so really what's important is that we make it clear that monkeypox is not something that just that has some biological predilection for gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men. This is just a social network and sexual network where this is beginning. So having vigilance that this is not just something that lives in this community is really important, but then also doing exactly what we're doing, being very deliberate about creating general messaging that uh, really teaches everybody the science-based strategies and the science-based information about monkeypox, but then also making sure we're using trusted messengers to the community that's overrepresented in this outbreak, specifically now gay, bisexual, 
and other men who have sex with men to get the word out to them in a non-stigmatizing, understandable, and culturally appropriate way. So we've worked really hard on clear harm reduction messaging that gives people the tools that they need to prevent monkeypox and have been very fortunate to work with, uh, you know, networks of providers as well as private and public folks who have been really helpful in us getting the word out. So it's really learning the lessons of the past. Like infections don't heed um, geographic or uh, borders and nor do they know someone's sexual orientation or, or gender identity. So that needs to be clearly stated and I think that we've done a pretty good job about that. But then also um, it's really important to make sure that the people who are at, um, at increased risk for exposure to monkeypox are aware of it. You know, it's interesting. We've started with a very low number, relatively speaking. It's still pretty low, but in New York City specifically, the number is going up. This might be a stupid question, but for people who are not in this business like you are, is there any kind of comparison to what happened with AIDS? So I, I tend to think that this infection is a lot more like something that happened in 2008 which is uh, something that was called community-associated or community-acquired methicillin-resistant staph aureus, and for short, people called it community-acquired or associated MRSA. And so um, there, there, were, there was activity that really started in uh, gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men. This is a skin infection that spreads from direct skin-on-skin uh, -skin contact. And so um, initially, there was a lot of discussion about this being really something focused in the, in the gay community, and soon thereafter, it was clear that it's not. And so I feel like, you know, and what they saw was spread to con like congregate environments, to homeless shelters, and to homeless people, to athletes, to other places where close physical contact um, is part of either the social environment or the culture of a space or of, of a group. So I, I feel like it is less resonant with HIV and more resonant with, uh, with that infection from the biological perspective. But... With that said, um, the resonance with HIV is that we've, we've really seen the lesson and learned the lesson that we need to give a range of strategies to prevent HIV, to prevent infection. And so we have behavioral strategies, those are the harm reduction ideas, and with an increasing amount of vaccine coming into, uh, in, into jurisdictions, vaccine is going to also be very important to provide uh, an effective immunological shield along with whatever behavior change folks are able to do um, to really help us get uh, monkeypox under tighter control. This virus comes right on top of the COVID uh, virus, which is still circulating clearly. Is there a concern that there's a, a lack of trust in the medical community, that people either don't take it seriously, don't take the precautions, tune out the experts, just try to say, I don't want to, they just want to ignore it. Yeah, I feel like this is like, this is one of those like deep questions that comes up in public health all the time. And it's really about who can you move? Who can you move from thinking about something into action? And the answer tends to be that folks who are in extremes, individuals who are very, 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 very uh, diligent and, and decide not to have a lot of sexual activity and people who are very, very sexually active, the messages may not matter to the folks who are very diligent and don't have a lot of sexual activity or close skin-on-skin -skin contact. And for individuals who have a fair amount of sexual activity or are engaged in behaviors that lead to skin-on-skin -skin contact, that messaging may not mean very much to them. But there's a large group of people who are in the middle who are listening to the information. 
And that really is what this is about. It's moving those folks in the middle from, uh, from going to a place that uh, protects them from a behavioral perspective and also making sure that they're aware as biological strategies like vaccine become increasingly available, how they can reach that. I, I also want to say that um, we have so much history in the, in the gay, bisexual, and other male who, men who have sex with men community or network um, with, with biological prevention. So um, in general, like the group is uh, really uh, interested in science and engaged in science. And when you look at COVID as an example, um, we actually uh, at CDC released a, uh, a, a report that detailed through our national immunization survey, what percentage of gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men said yes to the COVID vaccine. And so how many of them actually had vaccine for SARS-CoV-2? And it's well over 90, 90%. So it, it actually, I believe it approaches 95 or 96%. So we have a group of people who are like listening. We have a group of people who have history in being um, responsive to guidance as well as to uh, as the biological intervention. So you know, I, I sort of started in a very, very hopeful place as also a member of the community that, that, you know, I think we're able to motivate some significant actions in folks who are in that middle. And also I think have folks who are very excited to access, um, um, you know, the, uh, power of biological interventions to uh, prevent disease. The city is waiting for what it believes is its fair share of vaccines, so there's a certain amount of angst and aggravation. Dr. Daskalakis was on the other side of the equation during COVID when he worked for the health department. He gets it. I think that the, 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 that the message or the lessons learned in general in public health for me, both working locally in New York City Department of Health, which is a fabulous organization, um, as well as working on the federal level, is that there's never enough community engagement and you can never move fast enough. And, you know, I think systems are, are, are moving for this infection, like, very quickly. Um, I think that from the testing perspective, I think we're up to four or five um, commercial labs that are now doing um, testing for monkeypox. So I think that, um, you know, as, as, you know, all of the agencies that are engaged in moving testing and moving vaccine, I think we're really, you know, poised to have um, a, a, what is, in effect, um, a very, very fast response. It can never be fast enough. Infectious diseases move faster than systems. And so I think that this is a, a, a lesson that we've learned both from COVID as well as other scenarios. But I'll say from the perspective of, of responses that I've seen and been involved in, this one's moving very quickly from the perspective of, of really moving vaccine and increasing testing. You know, one thing that's big here in the city, I'm not sure this is necessarily uh, in your lane, but what's the likelihood? I mean, will the city start to get the, the volume of vaccines that it needs? Yeah, I think what's, what's in, we've really been working hard on the allocation of vaccine and, you know, lessons from every infectious disease, especially HIV, is that you really use um, disease activity where the cases are to move vaccines. So I think that as you sort of noted, New York has increasing number of cases. It means that in the allocations, they will be getting, you know, appropriate vaccine that's, uh, that is, uh, you know, allocated based on, on the cases that they have. It also really um, allows us to address a lot of equity issues to make sure that the vaccine is, is moving in that way. So I think that as we're seeing more and more availability of vaccine, and again, I think we just recently announced like over 130,000 doses that are coming, um, coming to uh, jurisdictions. Every day, every week, 
we're hearing more about more allocation and more vaccine coming. So the snapshot is that we are where we are. There is a mismatch between supply and demand, but that supply is increasing. And the good news is that we will not run out of arms to give the vaccine in because this population is so interested in these interventions. And the challenge is that with such a, a, a group of people who are so interested in this intervention, to keep pace from the perspective of supply is challenging. But so many aspects of government, not just CDC, but all of the other agencies involved are working um, as fast as possible to make sure that uh, vaccine uh, availability really starts to meet demand. Talk. Is there anything else that you want to add? No, I think you covered a lot of the, uh, I think we've covered so much. I think we're good. Great, Todd. Thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much, sir. And thank you for, uh, for helping us get the word out about strategies to keep people safe. We really appreciate it. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. The uneven response from the feds and the city have irked Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine. He was a frequent critic during COVID when he was chair of the city council's health committee. He spoke with our Peter Haskell. There are questions about testing and vaccines. Is this deja vu? Peter, it's so frustrating that two years after we encountered almost the exact same problems with COVID vaccination, uh, the shortage of COVID tests, the lack of access to COVID treatments, we are again seeing the same mistakes repeated in a new contagious disease, monkeypox. It's really inexcusable, and it's uh, risking this disease uh, spreading to the point where we can no longer control it. We've got to act aggressively now uh, on all fronts, on testing, on treatment, and certainly on vaccination. How did this happen, or why did it happen, either one of those? Well, the truth is that our public health systems were hollowed out and underfunded pre-pandemic and that the last two and a half years have been brutal on our public health system. And there are hundreds of vacancies in, for example, the New York City Health Department because people uh, have left. And many of those that are left are exhausted and under enormous stress. And then there's the, the challenge of the politicization of public health. And um, to a degree that's uh, unprecedented in modern history in America, public health leaders are themselves targets. And uh, that has further complicated their work and further demoralized the public health workforce. So um, having said all that, uh, I think there were further mistakes that compounded the resource problems uh, with just a, a slowness to act at the federal level commensurate with the severity of the crisis, um, a slowness to mobilize for vaccine supply, uh, a slowness to um, uh, disseminate information to providers about how to recognize and treat this disease, um, delays to this day on getting good epidemiological data out 
just basic um, uh, what they call an epi curve to track um, the incidence of cases over time uh, to track the demographics of who's being infected. Uh, the New York City Health Department put out uh, a breakdown last week, but it's uh, far ahead of what the federal government's published, and we still have no data on who's getting vaccinated. So um, there's been a, a series of failures here. Uh, from the perspective of New York City, I think that we have mostly been victim of lack of federal resources, uh, quite, quite uh, apparent in the case of vaccination. New York City at this point uh, is recording over 30% of the monkeypox cases nationally, yet we are receiving about 10% of the monkeypox vaccination supply nationally. And that mismatch is part of why we have such a desperate shortage in New York City where last week, uh, Friday night, there was a release of 9,200 appointments. They were gone in minutes by some estimates, gone in eight minutes. That is a reflection of the massive need and demand here that we're not able to meet. And uh, it's why I have been demanding and joining many other elected officials in demanding that New York City get a fair allocation of vaccine supply for monkeypox. So there are a couple of things here. There's this frustration that you talk about with the vaccine is out there, but people can't get it. And earlier in the week, or maybe it was the week before, the system to sign up and register crashed. So was this a system failure or was it just the system was overwhelmed? Uh, it was a system failure, perhaps uh, precipitated by uh, heavy traffic. But uh, my goodness, the city of New York uh, should be able to build a website that can handle heavy traffic. The, the, the traffic was entirely expected. And what's, what was really maddening about um, the breakdown in the web registration in the first couple of weeks of the monkeypox vaccine rollout is we had built a dedicated platform for COVID vaccination scheduling that had been tested and tried during a period of intense demand. And, and instead of just uh, activating that for the monkeypox vaccination rollout, the city contracted with some independent providers um, and those independent contractors failed. Uh, thankfully, by the third round of vaccination appointments, the city did activate. It's a website probably many listeners know because we all used it as vax for nyc And so now vax for nyc is the home both for COVID and monkeypox vaccination. And not surprisingly, last week we had another big rollout and that established platform, it held. Uh, and so the city can do this right. It, it was um, incredibly frustrating that the system failed for the first couple of weeks, but uh, I, I am feeling some relief that, that um, we seem to have righted the ship on the registration front. The fact that there are two concurrent health crises clearly complicates the matter. Where uh, I am concerned about this occurring on the heels of what is still an ongoing uh, COVID uh, crisis is the state of our public health system and our medical system more broadly, uh, which is exhausted and depleted by the past two and a half years um, uh, with uh, severe uh, hiring challenges, um, mass resignations. 
That's been reported a lot in the hospital sector, and that crisis is real, but it's been underreported in the public health sector. I'm talking about people who work for places like the New York City Health Department, uh, where there are hundreds of vacancies in key spots, and many of the remaining staff, which is exhausted and, and demoralized and feeling under attack from all sides. And that has definitely impacted our ability to respond with agility to the monkeypox crisis. And, um, and yeah, the, the lack of trust in institutions, the lack of trust in healthcare uh, and public health institutions has a devastating impact. And um, I mean, that is one of our most valuable assets. In a crisis, you need quick information passed to the public that the public can absorb and act on. Uh, that is a life and death matter. And if they don't trust the source of that information, um, it, it can have disastrous results. I'm tempted to ask if this is being taken seriously enough in public health, but it seems like maybe the better question is, is there the capacity to deal with these two significant issues at the same time? Well, we have no choice uh, because uh, we're in a, another COVID wave in New York City now, and we're in a monkeypox outbreak that may just be beginning. We don't know for sure. So we have no choice to act. Um, look, I, I certainly know the professionals in the New York City Health Department very well. I've worked, I was chair of the health committee for four years. I worked hand in hand with them during the COVID crisis. They are some of the smartest, most uh, dedicated, hardest working, uh, most fearless people that I've met. Um, so I, I, I believe in the talent uh, in New York City's health department. I think New Yorkers should feel lucky that we have uh, probably the best big city health department in the world. Um, but uh, even for these professionals, it's been a brutal two and a half years. And I think New Yorkers should be concerned that um, we have such a depleted workforce and in uh, our public health institutions. And um, there's not an easy, easy solution, um, but uh, uh, we can't continue to operate with hundreds of vacancies and a demoralized workforce. We really need to shore up uh, the entire public health sector. It's scary to think about what could be coming next and whether we can handle anything on top of this. Yeah, I mean, what's been consistent for New York City is that our summers for 2020 and 2021 were um, real lulls in COVID. And so even though we're, see, we're, we're recording uh, close to 5,000 cases today, a day in New York City now, I mean, we are what in what may be the summer lull. And uh, we have seen a pattern of um, a rise in cases when the weather turns cold. And um, uh, I think we need to... Uh, come to terms with the fact that this virus mutates quickly and that it, evol it evolves quickly uh, in new forms that find ways to evade immunity and uh, that we're in for a long-term fight and that um, we may be facing a tough late fall and winter. I think we need to prepare for that. and. Um, that we may be in a multi-front fight if monkeypox uh, continues to rise. So 
Um, we have to just continue to double down on investment uh, in our public health sector. And all of us have a role to play. Uh, all of us need to get uh, our booster shots. We need to get our flu shots. Um, we need to continue testing regularly. Uh, you need to wear your mask on the subway. I mean, there's just a lot that all of us can do. Uh, on monkeypox, we need to watch for symptoms, watch for unusual rashes, especially if you're in a high-risk group. Uh, isolate immediately if you see unusual rashes. Uh, consult the doctor. Every one of us has a, a role to play in um, managing these challenges. And when we do that, I know we can do it. New Yorkers have done it again and again. Uh, I'm confident we'll come out of this stronger. Last question, back to monkeypox. How, how concerned are you about the possibility of uncontained spread? Um, I don't think we know yet the future trajectory of monkeypox. But enough smart people have told me that they are worried that it could begin to spread beyond um, the relative limited uh, realm of, of men having sex with men. Uh, I think we all need to be concerned about that possibility, even if we don't know how likely it is. And that's why I say to New Yorkers of all backgrounds, even if you don't feel that you're personally at risk right now with monkeypox, you should also be outraged that we have insufficient supply of vaccines. Because if we don't contain this now, the implications could be bad for all of us. So we all need to rally, whether you are personally in a high-risk group or not, we need to rally to ensure that New York City, New York State, and the United States government do better in responding to monkeypox now at this early stage before it really gets out of control. Mark, thanks for your time. It's a pleasure, Peter. Thank you. There's no shortage of critics when it comes to the way the federal government has handled this. We spoke to Congressman Richie Torres of the Bronx. How has the federal government fumbled this monkeypox response? The federal government's response to the monkeypox outbreak has been a failure. And the worst offender by far is the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. So as a result of the FDA, more than a million doses of Gino's vaccine and monkeypox vaccine were left to languish in freezers in a pharmaceutical plant in Denmark. In the middle of an outbreak, it took the FDA two months to inspect the pharmaceutical plant and approve the release of those doses. So the FDA essentially allowed the monkeypox virus to spread uncontained for two months, which is inexcusable. And it gets even worse because, in, you know, instead of conducting its own inspection, the FDA had the option of recognizing an inspection of the pharmaceutical plant that had been done by its European counterpart, the European Medicines Agency, and the FDA refused to recognize the inspection. The FDA insisted on conducting its own inspection, even if it meant delaying the distribution of monkeypox vaccines. Are New York City and state also to blame, or do you think their hands have been tied by the federal response? Look, I think you can fault the city for the inequity of the distribution, but ultimately the scarcity of the vaccines is a federal failure. Uh, state and local public health departments depend on the federal government to provide them with vaccines. And we had the vaccines. We had a million vaccines ready to be deployed in a freezer in Denmark. And the FDA has shown itself incapable 
of rapidly deploying vaccines in the midst of an emergency, which is inexcusable. So you're calling for an investigation. What, what changes need to be made in this process to, uh, to get more monkeypox vaccines available? I'm calling on the Inspector General for Health and Human Services and the United States Comptroller General to investigate how and why our public health system is so profoundly broken and what can be done to fix it. You know, Albert Einstein famously said, if you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result, that's the definition of insanity. We cannot allow the insanity to continue. We have to build a public health system that's capable of rapidly deploying therapeutics and vaccines and diagnostics in the midst of an emergency. The city has been promised another shipment of 26,000 vaccines, and that could be a step toward easing the crisis. That's it for 880 In-Depth this week. The executive producers are Tim Scheld and Peter Haskell. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis and Mark Levine. 880 In-Depth gives us a chance to focus on an important issue in our community. You can find us at WCBS880.com, the Odyssey app, or wherever you get your audio. And please subscribe. I'm Michael Wallace. Thanks for listening. is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 